You know, Jay, Bastion is a surprisingly interesting villain. He really is, Miles. He questions his purpose just enough to make his adherence to it seem more like choice than programming. Has he ever really wavered on the kill-all-mutants front? Well, yes and no. Remember the Terrigen Mists? Wait, Bastion was behind those? What? No, 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 no. But the Mists were threatening to wipe out all of mutant kind, which basically threw Bastion into a logic paradox, and he ultimately decided to do his best to save the mutants. Aw, I knew he had it in him. So he could kill them himself later. WHAT?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 393 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Jay, do you ever do weird things with numbers in your head? Like, you sort of visualize them in certain ways when they're in certain combinations? Um, that's, that's a very broad question. Well, so we, we're on episode 393, and... I've found that any three-digit number with a three on either side of the middle number just makes me think of Wolverine because of the claws. I can't not think of them that way. Huh. Well, anyway, speaking of Wolverine, we're talking about some Wolverine comics this time. Right, and these Wolverine comics continue Operation Zero Tolerance. Um, If you are just jumping in with this episode, you might want to go back a few to where our coverage of that event starts. As far as this chapter, though, it's interesting, because even though we're covering four issues of Wolverine, this is really a story about the X-Men, who are not in their own comic right now. Like, half the team is in space, over in Uncanny X-Men, but Adjectiveless X-Men is going to be about some other stuff, about Iceman and Marrow and Cecilia Reyes. So for the X-Men proper, the ones who are on Earth, you gotta read Wolverine to get to them, and... I'm not sure why it was done that way. Like, it works. I think, you know, having a Wolverine-focused X-Men story in Wolverine makes sense. Giving the X-Men book some room to breathe to introduce some new characters makes sense. But pretty unorthodox, right? Actually, I think it's pretty common in events like this to basically transplant a character or a team into a connecting book or to shift the characters around so that you follow them to titles that you wouldn't normally read. I suppose so, although this being X-Men in the 90s, it would surprise me if somebody read Wolverine but not X-Men, or X-Men but not Wolverine. Although this is also the time that Marvel was uh, having some serious business difficulties, so I guess readership maybe was dropping off? I mean, I wasn't buying comics at the time, so there's that. I mean, I think there are plenty of people, and always have been, who've subscribed to the central team book and not necessarily the side books. Yeah, yeah, entirely reasonable. It just surprises me that Wolverine of all titles would need any sales help. So, we're not really going to go into detail about what's been going on with Wolverine up to this point, because this is, as Miles mentioned, basically an X-Men book. Um, but what's been happening with them? Yeah, so the X-Men, of course, are a mutant super team founded by Professor Charles Xavier to fight for the dream of peaceful coexistence between mutants and humans. Yeah, that whole dream's not going so great these days. And the problems with that dream are largely, right now, the result of a group called Operation Zero Tolerance, an international effort to basically wipe mutants off the face of the Earth, led by a guy named Bastion, a powerful and charismatic zealot who wears black and pink better than anyone has since the Hellions. And who, despite his strong identification with and protection of humanity, is actually a robot. More on that later. Much more on that later. 
The X-Men are having a rough time. Um, as Miles mentioned earlier, half of them are in space. The other half, last we saw, was captured by Operation Zero Tolerance in a surprise attack. So Cyclops, Phoenix, Storm, Wolverine, and Cannonball are all prisoners. As is former X-Men and current Generation X member Jubilee. And for that matter, as is Professor Xavier himself, who's been in Bastion's custody since he was arrested after the Onslaught event. So let's dive right into Wolverine number 115, in the face of it. This issue is written by Larry Hama, penciled by Laniel Francis Yu, inked by Edgar Tadeo, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. And actually, of these four issues, they have pretty much the same credits. The only difference is colorists. So Joe Rosas colors 115 and 116, and is joined by Chris Sotomayor in 117, and then Jason Wright colors 118. Otherwise... Same, same. Hey, that saves us some time. Right on. Um, You know, speaking of the creative team, Laniel Yu's art is a really solid fit for both this story and for Hama's writing. Yeah, completely agreed. Like, this book just feels like Wolverine, but not in a way that's so grim and gritty that it can't also feel like X-Men. Yeah, and Yu and Tadeo are also a very, very good pair um, in terms of, of penciler-inker combinations. Oh, me and Tadeo? That's very nice of you. I didn't realize we'd met. Wah, wah. Anyway, uh, yes, visually great, and like you said, you and uh, Hama work pretty well together, and that's always important. That's often overlooked. You can have an excellent writer and an excellent artist, and unless they collaborate well, you can still end up with a comic that's utterly incomprehensible. Yeah, and these two have really solid synergy. There are points where there are mismatches between the dialogue and the art, which I suspect strongly might be retrospective approval issues, based on where they are. Um, but in general, it's a really solid click. Um, so jumping into the story, this takes place before Generation X number 30 and 31, so Jubilee is still held captive by Operation Zero Tolerance. Right. She's been there for a while, even before OZT started, and Bastion has been tormenting her in various ways to try to get into her head to learn the X-Men secrets. So, for instance, in Generation X number 27, Bastion tried to psych Jubilee out by telling her that most of the X-Men were killed and the rest were being tortured. That was all lies. Well, and showing her holograms of them that, that she was supposed to believe were were real. And this time, Bastion is showing her captured X-Men again, but these are the real deal. They are holograms from the surface of the installation that she, where she's being held underground, which is an old Hulkbuster installation. And she knows this for one specific reason. She knows that this time it is real, not just Bastion trying to trick her. She sees Logan's hand resting on jeans in a grip that their captors could not have mimicked. In her heart, Jubilee knows that at the end, Wolverine would reach out for Jean one last time. She knows that he would do this with his last breath. She knows that this is a detail too subtle for the heavy hand of Bastion. And with that knowledge comes a dark and numbing despair. You know, I've said this before, and I'll probably say it again, but I really love Larry Hama's narration. It's got the same purpleness, but also momentum and intensity that Claremont and then later Nasseza pulled off, which is a really hard combination. Like, it's easy to do purple and overwrought. It's hard to do purple and overwrought with a sense of urgency and momentum. For real, yeah. My only complaint about Hama's writing at all here is that Wolverine talks too normally and doesn't come off like an old-timey prospector as much as he usually does when Hama writes him. Well, yeah, there are other X-Men around. Maybe he code switches. 
Oh, that could be true. That could be true. He realizes that they probably don't want to pan for gold or, you know, make moonshine in their bathtub. We also get a brief cameo here of Professor Xavier, who is apparently locked up in the same complex. Um, He was captured in X-Men number 57, and we had remembered that he had escaped, but he had not. He had helped helped a Manite prisoner um, named Nina escape. Yeah, yeah, he's still there, and it's interesting, like, Bastion talks to him, and the X-Men, spoiler, they they get out, they escape, but they don't meet up with Xavier. That's going to be a big deal later. They're not going to meet up with Professor X for a while. So, for now, though, they're all captured. Um, They're all sent to individual cells, except for Wolverine, who is apparently dead, and so sent down to the incinerator without restraints. And you can probably see where this is going. I mean, on the one hand, uh, seeing him throw himself out of a just-ignited furnace and then just slash into the Operation Zero Tolerance guards with his bone claws is pretty awesome. And of course it makes sense, because then he can go and save the rest of the X-Men. It actually kind of reminds me of when he got dropped into the sewers by Harry Leland back in the Dark Phoenix saga, and then fought his way up through the Hellfire Club guards to save the other X-Men. This isn't as badass, because nothing is as badass as that, but it's, you know, it's a nice little pseudo-thematic callback. Wolverine is definitely the designated John McClane of the team. Oh, yeah. I mean, in the Brood Saga, you know, he's the one that is on his own fighting off the Brood Infection. Wolverine works really, really well in that role. Like, we've talked a lot before about how Wolverine is an overexposed character, and he absolutely is, no question there. But he's the best there is at what he does, and what he does is be the one character that is badass enough to break out and save the rest over and over, and that's great every time. Okay, all of that said, though— Bastion seriously did not tell his troops that the dude who looks dead has a healing factor. That seems extremely relevant. Like, I know he hasn't unlocked the Xavier files yet, but he did unlock Cerebro, which would have that information. And I feel like he would do even a little tiny bit of research on anybody he was trying to capture and kill. Like, he's a robot guy. Robot guys love research. On the other hand, they're also impacted disproportionately by hubris. I guess so, but... But seriously, like, he gives Cyclops a ruby quartz cell, he gives Jean a telekinesis-resistant cell, and he just tells them to throw Wolverine in the oven. Uh, Cyclops' cell isn't ruby quartz, it's just blast-resistant. Even so, my point is, specialized, specialized, not specialized. He doesn't know it's Wolverine, either. Like, he doesn't seem to have anticipated Wolverine being with the team. This is really strange. Like, I could see, since Wolverine is still on the tail end of his feral, not-so-much-a-nose phase, like, he's mostly normal, but his speech bubbles are still all jaggedy, that maybe Bastion wouldn't recognize him. Like, they could have leaned into that, but they don't. It's just really inconsistent and weird. And don't get me wrong, I think these are great issues, I really like them, but if there's gonna be a villainous, mastermindy character, like, I would like that character to be any good at his job. Yeah, yeah. So Wolverine, once he gets out of the furnace, steals a guard's uniform and gun, gets Cannonball away from guards who are attempting to brutalize him, and then has them open the rest of the cells. Once all of the X-Men are together, they they pull off and escape fairly deftly. Specifically, Jean distracts the troops by creating the illusion of Bastion, giving each group a different password. Um, so of course, you know, when they check with each other, they'll immediately turn on each other. Jean's Bastion voice is pretty fun. Silence, fool. It is I, Bastion, your master! Someone definitely spent her formative years fighting Silver Age Magneto. Oh yeah, she has learned to villainously declaim. Respect. 
they escape in an elevator, and Aurora, of course, never misses an opportunity to be attacked by her claustrophobia and tell the readers about it. But I really like that Logan is the one who comforts Aurora, that without question, he's just there with an arm around her, talking her through it. That is their relationship. They respect each other so much, and Logan has never looked down on Aurora for anything. Largely because he's much shorter. Which is actually something that is also done right here. Laniel Francis Yu remembers that Logan should be like a freaking foot shorter than Storm. It's great. So the X-Men almost make it to the surface, but they are stymied by reinforced blast doors until Jubilee jumps past Bastion to mash the button that opens them. Because Bastion keeps on dragging Jubilee around with him as he does stuff. Despite the fact that literally every time he does, she attacks him. Yeah, like she's in a straitjacket, sure, but she can still headbutt a button on the wall, or, you know, bite him, or kick him, or whatever. Like, I don't know, I guess you could justify it by saying that Bastion, in his core, is still a little bit conflicted about whether he's doing the right thing, and so maybe he's sabotaging himself slightly by bringing Jubilee around, but the comics don't go into that, so he just kind of comes off as a dumbass. Maybe he finds her really annoying and he's keeping her around in order to, like, reinforce his decision. (laughs) To remind him that mutants are terrible, because god, look at that one. Exactly. That brings us to Wolverine number 116, What the Blind Man Saw. Uh, Once again, same credits, uh, completely, as the first one. So we open somewhere else entirely. Well, not that far away. It's a New Mexico trailer park out in the desert. And there we meet a scruffy, goateed man in aviator glasses named Mustang. And I love this guy. The main thing you need to know about Mustang is that in a live-action adaptation of Operation Zero Tolerance, he would unquestionably be played by Sam Elliott. Uh, a young Sam Elliott, and he'd have to go pretty earnest, but, uh, yeah, I remembered him as being a cowboy guy, even though he is not specifically a cowboy guy, he just has that vibe, you know? Yes, he has, he has, again, he has, he has Sam Elliott vibes. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, he is blind, as it turns out, and that gives us some neat narration to introduce the core X-Men who have escaped on foot from the Hulkbuster base. Five people walking out of the great nowhere. A wild-scented man, snarling like a roustabout. So I looked up the word roustabout, and it means an unskilled or casual laborer. So in my early IT days, uh, my wild scent and I would snarl at computers until they worked back when I was unskilled. There's less snarling now that I have more skills. Yeah, snarling isn't something I generally associate with roustabouts, but um, I, I guess that Mustang and I have had different life experiences in that regard. Anyway, continue. A woman with a voice like springtime. Another man who talks like a scoutmaster. Yet another man, no, a boy, he takes uncertain steps. Yeah, so in Larry Hama's Wolverine run, Cannonball's been a major character for for a while now. He's sort of Wolverine's occasional sidekick at this point. And Larry Hama, as much as I love his writing, definitely falls into the trap of writing Cannonball, the newest X-Man, as being totally green, a total newbie, always overwhelmed. Which is unfortunate, because again, he's very experienced. Sigh. I do deeply enjoy that he calls Wolverine Mr. Logan. Okay, that's pretty great, and that totally works. Anyway. And a second woman, a trace of cinnamon, exotic spices, and an electricity like ball lightning after hail. Mm. God, Hama, Hama's dialogue is, is good, but his narration is just top-notch. 
Anyway, Mustang is here with a bunch of other trailer park campers because of a nearby doctor who helps folks who have major injuries. Mustang himself, like we said, is blind. He's also had a ton of reconstructive work done since a plane crash. He has a permanent dialysis shunt in his side, even. As he says. Gotta go to the clinic every two days and get my radiator flushed. I love this guy. So the X-Men are desperate. They're hurt. They're tired. And... They really don't have any choice but to trust this guy. Gene, at least, has, has the presence of mind to, to scan and make sure that, that his, his intentions are, are relatively earnest, which, as it turns out, they are. That's good to know. I'd like to feel I'm as stand-up as I think I am. This guy kind of reminds me like a greedy cowboy Greg universe. I don't know, what do you think? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Mustang's a pretty perceptive dude. He susses out very quickly that these five folks are mutants and even what some of their powers are. And there's this great panel of all the X-Men looking silently at him. There's like a, a pause, a beat, and then they just open up and they learn Mustang's story. So Mustang was originally a military pilot, and after he left the military, he um, became a, a stunt pilot. And he was at an air show when an engine blew, and he had... He knew, he basically, if he wanted to survive, he should bail out, but the plane was headed towards the stands where there were kids, and so he stayed in it and managed to pilot it away from them such that he was the only casualty, and in doing so, pretty thoroughly wrecked his body. Yeah, and there's another panel right after that of the X-Men all looking at him again, but with these changed expressions on their faces— I think this may be part of why I like Mustang so much, because the book works so hard to make it clear that the X-Men like him, that the X-Men respect him. And, like, I'm not going to disagree with the X-Men, right? Especially when they all camp out under the stars with Mustang, and Mustang tells Cannonball about trying to imagine what the stars look like, but he can hear them, he listens to the music of the spheres. I want to go camping with Uncle Mustang. It sounds nice. We could have cocoa and s'mores. I'd like to think that this dude ended up at the Heartbreak Hotel. Oh, yeah, from that old Beauty and the Beast miniseries? I, I I love this plan. Like, I know he's not a mutant, but I feel like they would welcome him with open arms, and they would just be a big happy family, and it would be great. He's not really a human either, and we'll get there soon. Yeah, yeah, we will. Well, in the meantime, Wolverine ain't got no time for sleep. He heads to the clinic that Mustang mentioned overnight. And in the morning, Mustang wakes up to all of the X-Men surrounding his sleeping bag and saying they need to talk. Come on, guys, at least at least give Mustang a few minutes to pee and brush his teeth. Jeez, that would be horrible. I'm imagining them just acting like cats who want to be fed. Oh, they're all just sitting there staring at him quietly. Hey, 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 like poking his face. Yeah, if he doesn't wake up quickly enough, they just sort of like gently poke his chin with a paw. Yes. It's actually really easy to imagine Wolverine doing that. Well, yeah, again, we've got the Kate Beaton Wolverine to work from. Mm, yes, true, true. Cannonball just, like, blasts into him tiny distances repeatedly. (laughs) Just enough to be kind of annoying. Yeah. But there's a great scene, which is all in the shades of green, as Gene telepathically gives Mustang Logan's full sense memory of last night when Logan infiltrated the clinic. And it's done in a really cool first-person way. Like, you just see Logan's hands and Logan's shadow. It actually kind of reminds me of... Do you remember that old uh, parkour game that was set in first-person, Mirror's Edge? I do, but do you know why I like this comic better? Uh, Why's that? 
it didn't make me violently motion sick, which which Mirror's Edge definitely did. Entirely reasonable. And this vision just cuts back to, you know, the real world, the present day, to a full-color picture of Mustang as he's reacting out loud to this. Like, it's clear that his all of his senses are very active, but seeing for the first time in so long is such a big deal to him. It's so overwhelming. And what he saw specifically was the clinic full of shipments of robotic parts, uh, rows of skulls and arms, jars of robot eyes, and the evidence that, that Doc Prospero... God, that's a name. That Doc Prospero is is specifically under the guise of helping um, folks with, with apparently hopeless medical issues is actually turning them into prime sentinels. So remember, in the X-Force chapters of Operation Zero Tolerance, we learned more about that. We learned about Commander Ekaterina Grasnova, who was a woman who was seriously injured. While she was injured, a bunch of machines were put in her as her life was being saved, and she thus became a prime sentinel. That's what's going on here, except a lot of the people who are getting those implants, all of the ones in this story, they don't realize that that's prime sentinel tech. They don't realize that what's being done is anything other than just medical implants to help them with their medical issues. And that is terrifying. It's terrifying, and it's consistent with a long history of exploitation and medical experimentation on vulnerable populations. 100%, yeah. No, I think this is a great plot point. I think for me, like, Operation Zero Tolerance isn't one of the all-timers. We've talked about how it's, you know, not going to be in anybody's, like, top two X crossovers. I don't know. It's probably on someone's—it's consistently solid enough that I feel like it's got to be on people's top lists. That's true, and also so much of that is just influenced by all kinds of personal tastes, or when you came into X-Men, or whatever. I actually do have a friend who loves this era more than any other, which, you know, hey, that that is valid. Well, and like, for, exa- for example, Executioner's Song is on my top list, and it is objectively not one of the better crossovers. <laughs> fair point, fair point. Like, I just love it. Well, this one, even though Operation Zero Tolerance is not one of my personal favorites— the sleeper agent uh, Prime Sentinel thing, I think, is incredibly effective. Just the idea that, like, to protect humanity, there's that level of violation of humanity. But not like everybody. Like you said, it's a lot of vulnerable folks. It's not, you know, the politicians or military people who are behind this. It's the folks who have no major stake in that conflict, you know? Right. No one's ever going to turn Henry Peter Gyrick into a Prime Sentinel. Yeah, which... Oh, man, he's, he's a pain in the ass enough being just a normal human, so that's probably for the best. He would use the Sentinel abilities to just get through so much more paperwork. Mm-hmm. And just to annoy the superheroes way, way, way more. But yeah, Mustang is just crushed by all of this. He really thought he was going to be able to see again. And if he could see again, he could fly again. Like, this had been his dream. He'd been going to Doc Prospero's clinic for way longer than anybody else here because he had so many medical issues. Well, and Wolverine points out, you might be able to fly again, just not the way you're thinking. Uh, yes, yes, it's true. The Prime Sentinels can fly, and also they're horrible killing machines. So this is rough. And yeah, uh, speaking of Prime Sentinels flying, that's exactly what happens here, because there's an Operation Zero Tolerance flyover. Operation Zero Tolerance, of course, is looking for the escaped X-Men. Like, that's their main priority right now. Speaking of taking advantage of marginalized populations, uh, the place where Mustang's living is an abandoned trailer park that was primarily used by folks who were, were smuggling undocumented immigrants into the country. And there are some hidey holes there as a result of that, and so he, he gets the X-Men into one of them. 
And it looks like it's going to work. You know, the Sentinels are flying past. Someone comments that this place is really just a holding area for sleeper agents. And just as they're flying over, the bus comes back from the clinic with all the other residents heading home. And Mustang tries to tell them what he's learned and eventually says, and if you don't believe me, ask the mutants and opens up the cellar where they're hiding. Oh, oh, Uncle Mustang. No, you know. Maybe that's why I like Mustang so much. He is a good-hearted dumbass, and as a fellow good-hearted dumbass, I respect that. Speaking of dumbasses with more or less good hearts, varying depending on writer and story, uh, we, we segue here to Senator Robert Kelly hanging out in a graveyard and talking to his dead wife, Sharon. Yeah, Senator Kelly knows that he's been intensely anti-mutant in the past. I mean, of course, he was the target of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants back in Days of Future Past. And he was especially anti-mutant when his wife was killed in a mutant conflict. That was Uncanny number 246 in a fight with Master Mold. We uh, got that wrong recently and said brood. Whoops. A lot of people die in X-Books, okay? Right? I know. But this thing with Operation Zero Tolerance... Senator Kelly realizes this is going to be devastating for everyone. This is going to be war. What do I do? If I go against the flow on this, it may be the most unpopular move I've ever made. It might mean getting voted out next election. It's everything I've worked all my life for against everything I believe in and hold dear. And I don't want to feel like I failed you. I can't make this decision myself, hon. Which way do I go? The gravestone says nothing, but after a moment... Thank you, hon. I thought you'd see it that way. I'll be back again soon. I kind of love Senator Kelly. I mean, he's been horrible in the past, and he was a very mean principal in X-Men Evolution. But this is a dude who has a good heart, and when he realizes that what he's doing to people is in conflict with that good heart, he changes his mind. That is not a quality we see in politics enough. Yeah, I don't know that I'd say that I love him, but he's definitely more interesting and more dynamic as a character than most anti-mutant agitators that we see in, in X-Books. Oh yeah, Great and Creed was just horrible. Like, his personality was guy who is horrible. Well, he comes by it honest. Uh, that's true, his parents are horrible in their own ways. That brings us to Wolverine number 117, A Divine Image. Same creative team as before, with the addition of Chris Sotomayor on colors. And Mustang... Mustang has, has just again said, you know, if you don't believe me, you can ask the mutants. And Mustang, I get what you're doing, but bro. Bro. And unfortunately, Operation Zero Tolerance, as they were doing that flyover last issue, uh, figured that they might as well just activate any prime sentinels in the area, you know, just in case they stumbled upon mutants. As is exactly happening right now and here. And so a handful of the residents turn into prime sentinels, to the horror of the others, some of whom they subsequently kill for interfering with their prime directive. Okay, that thing you mentioned earlier, Jay, about how the art and the narration don't always line up. Like, One Prime Sentinel specifically talks about temporarily paralyzing a woman named Deborah because she's in the way. And like then Scott zarks a Prime Sentinel in the face while talking about neutralizing them without killing them. But the art for both of those things looks exceptionally fatal. Yeah, I get the impression that like this issue may have been written and then there was some, nope, nope, you can't kill, can't show killing. Yeah, and I mean, we've certainly seen that in X-Men before, like, way back in the day. I think there was a Savage Land story back in the, the Bronze Age, where Wolverine clearly killed some guards, and the dialogue of, I think, the next issue mentions, no, 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 he just, he just stunned them. It's fine. Well, and he unambiguously kills a Prime Sentinel in the next issue. 
Yeah, yeah. It's, I don't know. I mean, in modern X-Men comics, Wolverine kills tons and tons of people, but this was still in the comics code days. So I could see when the art got a little too hardcore, the editors might have been like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, uh, writer, let's have some dialogue that makes it clear that nobody's dead. Now, going on, if there's one thing we love, it's named bit characters. So uh, you may be as happy as we are to know that the patients who turn into Prime Sentinels are Felipe, Arvel, and Helmut. I don't know why that trio of names makes me giggle as much as it does. It's just so charming. I want the best for them. They, um, it's probably much too late for that, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, things do not go particularly well for these fellas. Because that's the thing, like, this is genuinely horrific. These are people who have been staying at this trailer park for a while, who know each other, who trust each other, like, a lot of them are probably friends. And all of a sudden... For reasons none of them comprehend, completely out of the blue, without warning, three of them turn into killing machines, losing themselves completely as people, and turning on and murdering their friends. Like, that's terrifying. It's it's horrible, and it's, I think, the part of Operation Zero Tolerance that works best. Agreed, absolutely. One of the things that this does, really from the revelation of, you know, where the Prime Sentinels come from, is that you spend most of this arc waiting for Mustang to change. Like, you know, you you recognize that as inevitable very, very early on. And, like, every time it, something's about to happen, you wonder if that's going to be it. And this is even before the story itself starts foreshadowing that specific event. It's just that we've all read stories. We know how fiction works, and we know that's coming. It has to. And that foreshadowing is is just it's it's brutal it makes every revelation and every sort of turn of a page and every event just a little crueler because again you know where it's leading and you know if it doesn't go there when you turn the page they're just holding it off for higher stakes exactly yeah and so the plot keeps on trucking. I mean, after this event, after the Prime Sentinels are taken out, and it is specifically mentioned that since they're such new Prime Sentinels and they're not done, they don't have communications equipment, and that's why the X-Men fighting them doesn't, you know, call in the rest of OZT. Uh, but after the fight, the X-Men and the remaining non-robot, non-dead residents decide that they need to shut this whole thing down. Right. So... As they're headed that way, Bastion calls Dr. Prospero, who it turns out is actually a Dr. Harper, and tells him to initiate the quote-unquote final directive. Dr. Harper, we've seen that guy before. He's a scientist that works for Operation Zero Tolerance, doing a lot of their tech Prime Sentinel stuff. He looks kind of like Einstein, except when we first saw him, when he looked a little bit more like Bloodscream, like a tall dude with no facial hair and a white ponytail. Um, I really appreciate that after that, at one point, he mimics Bastion in appearance, and Bastion's like, oh, stop doing that, stop changing your appearance, I know you can, which I'm pretty sure was just a retcon to explain why this guy looked totally different the first two times he appeared. Sorry, I love the idea that he does that just to irritate Bastion. Right? And that maybe he's specifically trying to look like Albert Einstein, it's not just a coincidence. But, uh, yeah, with that many different faces, I guess having multiple names is, uh, not a coincidence. But okay, Doc Prospero, I mean Prospero, like the wizardy dude from Shakespeare's Tempest, that is a choice, and I was thinking about what I know of the Tempest, and I don't really know why this guy would choose to call himself Dr. Prospero. Could you think of any reason? You know, wizard stuff. Fair enough, it was either that or Gandalf. I mean, Prospero is also kind of an asshole, so... True, true, I suppose. 
Uh, but we do get a chance to see Prospero's lab. There's a giant sentinel head hooked into all of this machinery. There are dozens, if not hundreds, of people in these stacked cylinders of green liquid, like it's one of the CG Resident Evil movies. There's a row of metal skulls on the shelves. Like, this is some top-notch mad science here. It is. So maybe this is the comparison, because like um, the Shakespearean Prospero, this guy is going to break his staff. He is He is going to just wreck his entire facility. But not quite yet, because as they're about to break in, Wolverine smells something and slips away just as they're solidifying their tactics. Which brings us to the desert and to the aftermath of Generation X number 31, which is when Jubilee and um, her friend Bastion's assistant Daria escape together. And Daria drops Jubilee off in the desert and flies off to misdirect the, the Prime Sentinel. So Jubilee is continuing to flee at this point, but she runs into a Prime Sentinel. She holds her own okay, but she does much better once Wolverine shows up for, and uh, rips the guy's throat out from behind. Oh man, like Dalton and Roadhouse, but uh, from behind. But yeah, it's really sweet. Like there are hugs and Jubilee is just so, so relieved to see her friend, especially after figuring he was dead. Yeah. So Wolverine and Jubilee go back to the clinic only to discover what the other X-Men and the, the patients have, have already found out, which is that it's been entirely cleared out. I really appreciate that we don't actually see the residents of the trailer park, like, crashing their bus into the clinic to open the doors. We don't see the X-Men infiltrating. Like, that's already done by the time Wolverine gets back, which is kind of cool. Like, this is Wolverine's comic. Yes, it's an X-Men story, but it's his comic. So seeing the X-Men have their own little story that we're not privy to is a fun way of handling things. Lenhama is a very, very deft storyteller in terms of choosing what's worth including on the page and what's worth addressing in retrospect. 100%, yeah. Kind of reminds me of that scene from Mad Max Fury Road where Max goes off to take out some bad guys and we just follow Furiosa for a little bit until Max comes back and describes what he did. Yeah. So we mentioned, you know, what's been building up and sort of lurking on the horizon. Here's where it finally happens. Bastion decides he's going to activate a special hunter-killer sentinel that's been dormant until now, and which, of course, turns out to be Mustang. No! Uncle Mustang! Well, anyway, that takes us to Wolverine 118, out of darkness into light. And, of course, it's Logan himself that is the one that tells the other X-Men, his teammates, to not attack, that Mustang would have blasted them all already if there wasn't anything human left inside him. This is why this works in a Wolverine comic, because Wolverine is the X-Man that knows the most about being corrupted, about being violated, about being modified by terrible people, and having to fight to get to the person left inside, the real human being, or mutant as the case may be, left inside. That parallel between Logan and Mustang is drawn so, so clearly. And Wolverine underlines it as he says... Fight it, Mustang. Whatever it is that Bastion planted in you to steal your soul and make you over into a killing machine, it ain't strong enough to beat down a man with as much heart as you got. And Logan tells his friends to save the patients, get out of there. He's gonna shut himself in, he's gonna try to talk Mustang down. And by talk Mustang down, of course, we mean with both words and claws. I mean, this is a Wolverine comic, after all. And Wolverine keeps telling Mustang about how he got over his own past... And as this happens, the Mustang bot just keeps getting the terminate signal. Like, we see the world through Mustang's cybernetic eyes. Mustang can see now, but Mustang isn't himself anymore. This would all be darkly comic if I wasn't so genuinely emotionally invested in this whole thing. Yeah. 
There's a lot that if it weren't handled as well as it is here, I think we'd be making fun of, but honestly, I think in a lot of ways, that's the difference between a good and a bad comics writer on a book like this, and, and creative team in general, because um, the art is a huge, huge factor in, in what makes this work as well, which is being able to get the audience that invested, being able to make even the silly stuff feel like it matters. Yeah, 100%. And don't get me wrong, I do love me a goofy-ass comic sometimes. Like, you can have a silly comic that is not a bad comic. There are so, so many examples. But that wouldn't be right for this story here. So it's actually Jubilee this time who saves Wolverine instead of the other way around. She rushes back in against the X-Men's exhortations, and she paths Mustang Bot right in the face, overloading his cyber eyes and blinding him again, which is what brings him back to himself. It's sad, but it's also really nice to see that Mustang's okay. I was genuinely worried about him. Unfortunately, the situation outside is real dire. Hundreds of Prime Sentinels are converging um, from, from the Hulkbuster base as the X-Men watch in horror. That's bad. However... It turns out that the reason they're converging is that they are all retreating from S.H.I.E.L.D. fighter jets because the government has ordered S.H.I.E.L.D. to shut down Operation Zero Tolerance. That's good! One Prime Sentinel flies toward the X-Men, and Cyclops does his best to talk him down, to get through to him the way Wolverine was getting through to Mustang, and Cyclops just won't give up even as the danger increases. Give him another few seconds. He seemed to be listening to me. I just want to slow him down. Reason with him. But then there's a shoom, and Scott's chest is a raw, smoking mess. It's done really well in Lionel Francis Yu's art. Like, we can see just enough to see that this wound is horrible. Like, there's jagged cloth bits all ripped up around it. It's smoking. But it's not gore. It's not too on panel, which A, means it's less gross, and B, means it's left to our imagination, which almost makes it seem worse. At that point, a furious Jean Grey telekinetically rips the nanotech out of that Prime Sentinel, leaving a human. And I love that. I love that even Jean, at her most furious, at her most emotionally activated, is still inherently compassionate. Like, this aggressive-aggressive act is still, in a way, an act of healing. And that duality, I think, is so much of Jean Grey, whether she's got Phoenix stuff going on or not. I love this moment. S.H.I.E.L.D. lands their ridiculous vehicles and gets out in their ridiculous outfits, with G.W. Bridge, current acting head of S.H.I.E.L.D., because Fury's dead at the moment, taking the lead. And Bridge recognizes our heroes. They're the X-Men, walking trouble with the best of intentions. <laughs> that is a very good description. Interestingly, the only one that Bridge recognizes is Cannonball, the newest X-Men, which totally makes sense, because GW Bridge has had way more interaction with X-Force than he ever did with the X-Men, and Cannonball was central to X-Force for, like, that entire time. You know what I love? What's that? I love the just goofy, intense 90-ness of the S.H.I.E.L.D. troops. Oh, their outfits are amazing! Like, the number of pouches and the amount of random machinery and occasional just ridiculous face paint on these folks is great. The pouches, man, these soldiers never have to worry about supplies. I bet th that S.H.I.E.L.D. has ranks like Snack Carrier First Class and Mobile Phone Charging Technician. Seems plausible. 
So yeah, as we saw back at that gravesite, Senator Kelly has decided to order all of this to be shut down to pull the government's support for Operation Zero Tolerance, and now S.H.I.E.L.D. is here to arrest Bastion. The X-Men thank G.W. Bridge and thank S.H.I.E.L.D. for doing all this, for doing the right thing, but Bridge says no, he actually thinks it makes sense that people are afraid of mutants. That's not prejudice, just reality. That doesn't stop the S.H.I.E.L.D. medics from treating Cyclops and his gaping chest wound and finding a nanotech device implanted in him. Uh, somewhere ambiguous? Like, the dialogue says it's in his abdominal region, but the art shows it clearly right behind his sternum, and I don't know who to believe here. Trust no one. Hmm. Well, anyway, the point is, Operation Zero Tolerance must have implanted something in him while he was unconscious. Weirdly, just him? I don't know why they picked Cyclops in particular. Eh, boredom, height... Oh, maybe, yeah. They were going in descending order of height. Wolverine would be the last one. They were going to throw him in the furnace anyway. Exactly. Logan comes out with Jubilee and is still robotic, but very much in control of his mind for the moment, Mustang. Mustang has beaten his programming with the help of Logan and his pep talks. Yay! Well done, Uncle Mustang. I knew you could do it. Well, he can, he can do it for now. Yeah, it's long enough for Logan to hand off a handful of discs to Mustang which have clinic data on them, which should let him track down the clinic's victims and undo the prime sentinelizing. Yeah, S.H.I.E.L.D.'s going to help with that. Their technicians are going to do their best to take care of it. Uh, I I was trying to figure out what these discs were. They're like kind of big floppy discs, but they don't look as floppy. They look a little bit thicker. So I went deep into my own memory with some help from Google. I think these may be jazz discs, which were like those really big zip discs that could hold a gigabyte of data back in the day, which was immense back in the mid to late 90s. I I assume that's what it is. Also, jazz discs are just funny because they're called jazz discs. Are you sure they're not? CD-ROMs? <laughs> no, no, no. CD-ROMs belong in X-Factor. Jazz discs belong in Wolverine. Okay, then. Mustang tells Logan to get going because, yeah, like you were saying, Jay, Mustang can't hold that Prime Sentinel programming back for too long. Wolverine tells him goodbye. It's been an honor to know you, bub. You're more man than most. So off the X-Men go. Storm pilots the plane, Logan co-pilots, and Gene, Sam, and Jubilee take care of Cyclops in the back. I love Logan and Storm here. They are just the heart of this era of the team in a lot of ways. Ro, me and Slim, we've had our problems. But all that's water under the bridge. Seeing him and Red in pain like that? Right now, I wish Psych was the one with the healing factor. Jean is the sister I never had, and her anguish pains me as well. I fear a great number have suffered because of Bastion's madness. The madness that dwells within us all. The potential for hate. It is a foe we have defeated before and will defeat again, by standing together till the end. And they hold hands on the throttle. I love their friendship. And yes, I know it's more than friendship sometimes. I know they were at least sexually, if not romantically, involved for a while. But at the core of that is such a solid friendship. But no time for love, Dr. Jones. Unfortunately, the nano-implant is moving inside Cyclops' very pink chest. It's a bomb! And we'll get to what's up with that in the post-Operation Zero Tolerance X-Men issues. And speaking of 
the details of specific issues, this is Larry Hama's last issue writing Wolverine. He had an immensely long run on this book, which overall, I know we didn't cover much of it, but is great. We are going to see him move to Generation X. He's going to be taking over as the regular writer of that book for a little while. As for the Wolverine comic itself, it had a few fill-in writers here and there, including Chris Claremont. But mostly, for the remainder of its run, it has a long Eric Larson run. That's the guy behind the Savage Dragon, if you've heard of that. And a long Frank Thierry run. I remember liking the Eric Larson run okay, and really disliking the Frank Thierry run. It was too, I don't know, edgelordy, I guess. Uh, But yeah, that's it for Larry Hama on Wolverine. He made a wonderful, wonderful dent of old-timey prospector speak and incredibly convoluted backstory, and I respect him for it. You know, you mentioned that that we haven't covered much, and I, I, I've got to say, listeners, while we ha- while we have no solid plans, so if you ask us about them, we'll just sort of stare blankly at you. Um, this is definitely a run that we've we've flirted with the idea of going back and covering at more length, and and may yet someday. If nothing else, there's a lot to say about Albert and LCD. Oh my God! I just realized there is something I completely forgot to mention about this arc, and it's a really minor thing, and it's like one of my only quibbles with this arc. And it completely, completely fled my mind until this, until now. What's that? So Cyclops and Cannonball are wearing t-shirts for most of this arc, and their t-shirts change color from white to blue and blue to white multiple times in every issue. Oh, I, I have a no prize explanation for that. Is it hypercolor, TM? Exactly! They are out in the desert, and as we know, the desert has a great deal of temperature variation with hot days and cold nights, so it makes perfect sense that their 1990s hypercolor TM t-shirts would be changing colors on the regular. I'll buy it. This final Larry Hama arc of Wolverine and chapter of Operation Zero Tolerance has been brought to you by Hypercolor TM. And with that, you've got questions. Ladro asks via email, I was thinking about Jean Grey and Scott Summers today. After he thought Jean was dead, Scott dated Lee Forrester, Colleen Wing, and then of course Madeline Pryor before Jean came back. Jean, meanwhile, seemed to have gone on a few G-rated dates with Ted, I'll never be as good as my brother the Cobalt Man, Roberts, in the 60s, then got together with Cyclops and never looked back. Am I missing something? Or did Jean never get to date another human being until her thruple with Wolverine? I mean, there was the whole thing with Mastermind, but... That wasn't okay, and the less said about that, the better, and also that was technically the Phoenix Force, not her. I mean, I'd like to think she at least went on a few dates while she was traveling to clear her head between the apparent volcano deaths of the X-Men back in the Bronze Age and the whole Mastermind thing getting started. But again, that wasn't Jean, that was the Phoenix. Although, with Jean having absorbed the memories of the Phoenix back in X-Factor, like, maybe that still counts? I don't know. There was a lot of flirting with Angel back in the Silver Age. Like, dating worked differently back in the 60s, so maybe you could count that as them being sort of involved. The only official thing I could think of was that when she was time-displaced as a teenager, you know, back in the all-new X-Men slash X-Men Blue era, she was specifically involved, like, romantically, with the time-displaced version of Beast. And that is Earth-616 canon, because at the end of that plot line, when the teens went back to their time, their memories of their experiences were sort of shunted into their adult selves. So that is something that happened with the actual 616 gene and actual 616 Beast. And... Yeah, that's all I could find, which is nuts. Like, two, potentially three members of the original five X-Men, and the Cobalt Man's brother. 
And now my Google search history makes me look like a stalker. I hope I've missed something. Listeners, if I've missed something, please, please let us know. The Cobalt Man's brother is the saddest thing to have on your dating resume. It would be an even sadder thing to have on your business card. Ooh. Anyway, that said, I'm pretty sure Gene and Emma have something going on uh, behind the scenes in Krakoa, but uh, that is not, you know, on the page. Yet. Brandon asks via email, In your most recent episode, as I type this, you're spotlighting Nathan Summers, Cable, and Nate Gray, X-Man. I was thinking that you'd missed a League of Nathans opportunity, but then I thought, who'd win in a fight? The League of Nations or a League of Nathans? Comprised of, I don't know, Cable, X-Men, Mr. Sinister, Nathaniel Richards, and any other Nathans, Nates, or Nathaniels from the Marvel Universe that you want to stack the deck with. Maybe the League of Nations can amalgamate together like a bureaucratic Voltron? So, my answer to this kind of depends on how you conceptualize the League of Nations. If you're talking about the entity, the League of Nations, like the, all the delegates, then they're, they're screwed. Um, part of the issue with the League of Nations, part of why it didn't work, is that it had no actual powers. Um, on the other hand, if, if you're counting all of the constituent states, then those states presumably would also include, if we're looking at Earth-616, a number of superpowered entities, so you'd put, have things on more even footing. That makes sense. And also, as powerful as that collection of Nathans are, especially X-Man, who's canonically one of the most powerful beings in the Marvel Universe, like, they would not be able to accomplish any kind of a shared goal. Nate himself fights his allies, like, all the goddamn time. That's one of his defining principles. Mr. Sinister manipulates everyone and it never works out. Nathaniel Richards, one of the Nathaniel Richardses, is fucking Kang, who even goes so far as to fight himself a bunch of the time. So, uh, yeah, I think the League of Nathans might just wipe themselves out, giving a default victory to the League of Nations. Especially if there's the Voltron thing. Ooh, but that still leaves Cable, who's by far and away the most effective of the Nathans. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, that's very true. Although, Strife is also kinda sorta a Nathan himself, and so maybe Cable and Strife would be so busy uh, going man-to-man and quite literally face-to-face that they would be too distracted to fight anybody else. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, quite literally face-to-face, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Nathans, I mean Sundays, on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, when it feels like it, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode alongside original illustrations by David Wynn. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. And please, rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. It really helps. Next week, Cecilia Reyes and Mero join the team. As Operation Zero Tolerance continues. (laughs) ¶¶